Welcome back, everybody. I have today Andrea Trescott. I don't think she needs a real introduction. Uh, pretty much, if you don't know Andrea, you're not in the pain world. She's a uh, incre- incredibly accomplished individual whom I've seen just grow and grow and grow. She's been president of ASIP. She's uh, written a little handbook um, about peripheral nerves. It's uh, uh, it's only 900 pages, but um, it's it's going to be it's the go-to book period in peripheral nerves. And she has enlightened me and educated so many, and started a a world education program um, that I, I think is going to be groundbreaking. I, she's going to places where. Pain is in its infancy, like in the United States here probably 30 years ago, 40 years ago. She's taking her expertise, which is profound, to places that really need it, that are underserved. And uh, she's going to be remembered for that. Um, She's also very articulate. And this podcast is all about a fun uh, and very educational uh, lecture that she gave. I recorded it because I, I want to get Andrew any anytime I can. And yeah, it's got slides and everything, but I don't think you need the slides for the point. Uh, maybe someday we'll couple the slides, but point now is to listen to the message from Andrea on something that is rocking our pain world right now. And that's uh, the opioid epidemic. What is it? Where's it going? And who's really responsible for that? Um, I've had uh, one or two rants about this, uh, and I've talked to some groups uh, about this in Georgia and Florida. Uh, it's it's not um, as it appears. Andrew's going to touch on that. The important thing about this podcast is to kind of listen to it carefully, but also make it a point of reference that when you feel like, oh man, am I really doing the right thing for the right reasons? You, you can you can fall back on these words and, and understand it's coming from a world leader, absolutely world class, that understands, has been through pain treatments on you know, all levels, and has uh, made a significant contribution to the pain world. So her, her word is um, very powerful. So take a listen to this uh, and... Um, I, I think communicating with Andrew is one of the most uh, exciting things you can do at meetings. Uh, so go to the ASIP meetings. She goes to other meetings as well, and she's incredibly approachable. Talk to her about emerging technology. She's involved with a company that has uh, peripheral nerve stimulators that are um, just fascinating. And talk to her about where she thinks we're going to be in three, five, ten years from now. Incredible insight from an incredible woman. Let's get to it. Doing this, I'm going to give you a little bit of my disclosures. I'm a lot of 
others, a lot of foreigns, uh, are previous. I uh, was the past president of ASIP and the past president of several of the state societies, uh, past chair of the World the Education Committee on the World Institute of Pain. I've been a professor, I've been in private practice, and now I'm the chief medical officer for Stimwave. So the... Oh, you took the... Hmm? Okay. So we've had some... Number one. Okay. Can you hear me? No. All right, guys. Let's. That's three. Turn this one down. <laughs> Mute this. Okay. Sorry, guys. I don't mean. You're taking my time. You've got my timer. <laughs> All right. Okay. All right. Okay. Try it again with three. Oh. Because that's not my mic. Where? Oh. That's why. All right. Let's try this one more time. Okay. So we've had biblical plagues. And now we've got modern plagues. And these, if you watch this, you will see turning orange all the areas in the U.S. where there have been considered increased opioid deaths. So it's been a growing problem. And as you've seen, we've had this dramatic increase of fentanyl and amphetamines um, and opioids over the last couple of years. Very interesting, this inflection point being about 2012. The... ASAP has been on the forefront of opioid prescribing. In 2006, we did our first opioid guidelines. We did more guidelines in 2008. We did guidelines again in 2012. And a two-part, where one was the evidence assessment and the other one was the guidance. And so then in 2016, everything seemed to change. So we had the CDC guidelines, and pay attention to those names because those names are going to come up several times. And what they did is they said that you're going to have non-pharmacologic therapy or non-opioid therapy would be what you should. When opioids are started, they should prescribe the lowest effective dose. When opioids are started and that they should not with up to 50 morphine milligram equivalents and should avoid increasing to greater than 90 morphine equivalents. And then they said you have to assess the risk and periodically uh, looking at um, things to mitigate that risk and to recognize that the factors that increase the risk for opioid overdose, such as a history of overdose, history of substance abuse disorder, and higher opioid doses, greater than 50 morphine equivalents, and um, concurrent benzo use. And so this was March 2016. And the DEA got involved in this as well. They started looking at diversion control and said providers should always exercise caution. The FDA got involved. They started doing blueprints for treating pain patients. And so what happened? This should have helped fix the problem, right? Instead, doctors started rapid discontinuation of opioids, refusing to fill medicines or insisting on a rapid wean. The state started writing laws mandating this 50 to 90 morphine equivalent limits. Insurance companies stopped paying for opioids. And pharmacies stopped filling 
opioid prescriptions. So this is Medicare. They did their opioid limitation and morphine equivalent and the overutilization monitoring system to retrospectively identify and provide case management to potential opioid overprescribers. Boy, we're going to watch you. And then the use of soft or hard cumulative morphine equivalent doses at point of sale edits. So not whether you wrote it, but getting it at the pharmacy to prospectively identify potential opioid overutilization. So what we found then were people coming back to my office. This was not one of my patients because I never write SOMA, but they said that please do not send these four prescriptions to Costco because we will not be able to fill them. And so what's the patient supposed to do? So the patient started committing suicide while the opioid deaths kept going up. Now, the limits on these opioid prescribings were, have been identified as leaving patients in chronic pain vulnerable. They are, there's been a rampant misapplication of the guidelines, a snowballing of initiatives and regulations and mandates from multiple parties. He would, this, uh, Stefan Kurtz did a, a, co-authored a letter signed by three former White House drug czars and more than three other, uh, physicians urging the CDC to clarify their guidelines. The, they had an, another editorial, We Can't Treat the Dead, that said 22% of suicides in 2015 reportedly occurred among people with documented health problems. And so while the CDC's prescribing guidelines were intended for non-cancer opioid pain, we now know that it's being used to block the patients, uh, patients with cancer pain. And we're seeing that every day. And so this was an internist and talked about one of his patients. We also have known since that the CDC publishes guidelines at least 33 states have adopted guidelines, limits, or other requirements for prescribing opioids. And now nearly half of the state's limits, limits specify that they apply to treating acute pain. And most states set aside exceptions for chronic pain states. Maine is the only state whose law, which sets a limit of 100 morphine equivalents for up to 30 days, applies to both acute and chronic and so we have this problem where we have patients who are coming in and they're saying, my doctor won't fill my medicine, and they hand the, the next doctor a copy of this state's Strengthening Opioid Misuse Prevention, or STOP Act, which limits the prescriptions for acute pain to five to seven days. Now, it's a great idea, but when you start looking at some of these major spine surgeries, when you talk about major abdominal surgeries, when you're talking about to say, to give somebody who had a, um, a knee arthroscopy five to seven days of opioids, that's probably very appropriate. But there is nothing in there that takes to into account the degree of pain and the, the presence or lack of any kind of perioperative pain management. So I'm going to go over a couple of opioid myths, pain myths. One is that the risk of death goes up dramatically over 90 morphine equivalents. We've all heard that, right? That was the basis for picking 90 morphine equivalents. But a review of the CDC's own data, which I'm going to show you, reveals there is no relationship between the deaths or the ER visits. So uh, this is um, data that I got from Richard Lawhern. He's with the, um, and John Tucker, uh, they are um, with the Alliance for the Treatment of Intractable Pain. And what they did, they had a whole Excel sheet, but basically on this Excel sheet, in a strong relationship, R squared should be above 0.9. 
And they computed the R-square for all this data, and it was so low and so much of a scattergram that it's no consistent relationship could be detected. So this is from the CDC's own data. This is 2019 opioid deaths per 100 people by U.S. state. This is deaths per 100 per, um, again, total stotogram. This is by, um, this is the prescribing rate versus the opioid deaths. Total scattergram. Changes in opioid deaths versus change in prescription. Nothing. Opioid-related ER deaths, visits, versus opioid prescribing by state. 2010, 2015 did not change. And then the changes in prescribing versus the changes in ER visits by state from 2010 to 2016, no change. Now, interestingly enough, they were able to get that data in 2016. Since that time, that data has been given to a private company charging $40,000 for access to that data. Interesting, isn't it? So prescribing rates are not a significant driver in either um, the U.S. overdose death or ER admission rates. So that's myth number one. That when we start looking at the data itself, is the devil in the data? This is looking at prescribed opioid mortality in the CDC. And so these authors actually went to the actual number of prescription analgesic deaths. They went to the individual state's Department of Health. And so they went to Illinois, because that's where they lived, and they, Illinois said, well, they had an increase from 589 to 1,200 between 2015 and 2016. All right, this is a 107% increase. Really bad, right? But it was very curious because we've actually had this decrease in opioid prescribing. So they talked to one of the statisticians, and what they found was found that this dramatic increase was almost completely driven by illicit fentanyl, as Ken showed you, and its potent analogs, not legitimate pharmaceutical opioids used to treat pain. And they, they were able to show a total of 59 deaths that had a legitimate prescription opioid, 59 of them. 32 had oxycodone. Okay, but 75% or 72% of the deaths that involved oxycodone included either alcohol, a benzo, or both alcohol and a benzo, kratom, methamphetamine, or another prescription opioid. And these suggest not that there's an opioid epidemic or a prescription opioid crisis, but rather there's a polypharmacy crisis. And so um, uh, uh, Descupta did a cohort study, the impact of high-dose opioid analgesics on overdose mortality. And he concluded dose-dependent opioid risks among patients gradually increased and did not show any evidence of a distinct risk threshold. 90 is no worse than 100, is no better than 60 morphine equivalents. There is no magic threshold. And so that he felt there was an urgent need for guidance about combining medicines, though, because he found a great deal of risk with having the combination of opioids and benzos. That was real. So Richard Law, the um, so what they looked at they, of the of the twenty one. The 2.1 million patients that were prescribed opioids, they identified 478 overdose deaths, 0.22, 0.022 percent per year. 
And so their conclu- that, was their, that was how they came to that conclusion. Now, what's interesting, Richard Lotharn, again with that uh, ATIP, wrote a letter to Dr. Gupta. And he said, he said, can the increased incidence of overdose-related mortality treated with benzos be related to depression and anxiety being known cofactors with chronic pain, more or severe forms of pain associated with deeper levels of clinical depression, and the coincidence of higher mortality in patients treated with both may be an artifact, not of the drug interaction of respiratory depression, but rather of unsuccessfully treated clinical depression. Well, Dr. Dan Scoopko wrote back, and he said, Richard, you raise a very important point that should be pointed out. I believe the mission, believe in the mission of the ATIP and feel free, feel free to pillory my paper. I love this. He was great. And yep, those are key issues. I use the definition of benzos any past year prescription, which, as any good epidemiologist would understand, is exactly a proxy for the points you raise and not a pharmacological risk as my work has been interpreted, a classic case of confirmational bias. So in summary, you're right, and you should point out these problems and hang my study out to dry. I was making a much more nuanced point that feigning shock was, did not get picked up. Fire away. So myth number two, addiction is caused by prescribed opioids. Well, it turns out that though we heard that a long time ago, that the risk of addiction is low. New data really does support this. So this was post-surgical patients in opioid-naive, opioid-naive patients, post-surgical prescriptions, and they they looked at 56% of patients received a post-operative opioid, and then they and a code for abuse that was identified, and that ended up being 0.6%. And what was the biggest risk was not the dose, but it had to do with the duration was the strongest predictor. So maybe reassessing patients after five to seven days does make some sense, but preventing them from getting opioids after five to seven days is not. And so myth number three, reducing prescribing will end the opioid crisis. Well, we're showing that's not happening. The number of opioid prescriptions has steadily declined since 2010 long before the CDC guidelines, but the number of opioids has risen sharply ever since. And so here you see, this is West Virginia, the opioid drug dispensing. You see this steady decline of prescribed opioids. The controlled substance prescriptions dispensed, dropping dramatically. Starting at about 2000, this is 2011, and the far end of it is 2017, continues to drop. We are writing less prescription opioids. However, ER visits for opioid overdoses are on the rise. And so what, if you superimpose those two graphs, what you see are that the opioid prescriptions are dropping and the opioid deaths are rising. Myth number four, pain patients are driving the opioid crisis. That's what we've been told. We're the bad guys. We're writing those opioids, and that's what's causing the opioid crisis. Therefore, we have to stop writing opioids. But pain patients are primarily older, and their rate of overdose has not changed in 10 to 15 years. While the younger population, who's obviously got more likely to indulge in risky behaviors, has seen a rapid increase in overdoses. And so here you see, down on the bottom, 
This is the elderly, the 61 to 70 age group is in the dark, and in the blue and the green, you see the younger, the, the 20 to 25 to 35 year olds. Those are where the deaths are occurring. That's not the chronic pain patient, is it? That's not the patient you're seeing in your office. Myth number five, medical cannabis will cure the opioid crisis. We had a wonderful lecture on CBDs. I, I have a CBD product in my office that we have for sale. I have seen dramatic improvements in my patients with CBDs. But not only does the recent data show that medical cannabis is not helping in the states where it's legal, Alaska, it is legal. Um, the underlying assumption of this myth is that chronic pain care is driving the opioid crisis. It is not. So while cannabis and CBDs are a wonderful adjuvant for our patients, anything that improves their pain relief, in my mind, if it were camel piss, I'd use it. But it's important to recognize that that isn't going to fix the problem. And so this mad rush to get people on medical marijuana because that will keep them from having opioid overdoses. Nobody ever died of a marijuana overdose, right? Well, that's not the case. Oh, well, there we go. So marijuana used to impede pain control use impedes pain control following trauma. So they did a retrospective study, 261 car crashes over a four-month period in which marijuana use was reported in 21% of the cases with 30% overall marijuana use described as chronic. The unadjusted mean opioid consumption was 8.58 among the marijuana users compared to 6.05 among the non-users. No difference. So they are still using at least as much, actually probably a little more, opioid, maybe because of what Dr. Candido was saying is they like the buzz, the combination. But clearly marijuana is not stopping the opioid crisis. Myth number six, decreasing the number of opioid prescriptions will solve the opioid problem, right? They're making us stop writing opioids. Anybody remember prohibition? You know, it takes effect. Stock up now. You've got, you know, drop it. We're breaking down the barrels, and here are people saying, We want beer. And the, you could get medical alcohol. Sound familiar? You could do it with a prescription. And what we found was when we didn't, when people were making these medicines, the alcohol on their own, there were phenols and fusel oil and aldehydes and acetones as adulterants causing people to die. We have patients, we're not giving them opioids, they're going to heroin on the street, which is being laced with fentanyl, and they die. So prohibition made alcohol illegal, but drinking actually increased. Shouldn't surprise us, guys, that when you make opioids unavailable, you cause an increase in use. So... Myth number seven, there are lots of non-opioid ways to treat chronic pain. Now, I'm on the, um, H, the Health and Human Services opioid, I mean, uh, Pain Management Task Force, and we have a, a we're putting out a, a uh, we just put out our draft report. We're going to have our open meetings next week in D.C. You're welcome to come if you'd like to hear boring stuff. But anyway, we've got 150 pages of things that you can do, of which a very small part of it is interventional pain and and uh, pain medicines, 
But concurrent with the increase in opioid deaths has been the decrease in procedure authorizations. And though there are many methods to to treat pain, from physical therapy to spinal cord stimulation, chronic pain is so horrible that all effective options, including opioids, should be available. And so this is just looking over the last um, couple of years. So 2000-2016 in black, 2000 to 2009 in blue, and most recently in red, you can see the significant decrease in the authorizations for procedures. So at a time when we're not being able to write opioids, we're also not being able to use any of our other interventional procedures that allow us to be able to decrease the amount of pain they're having and therefore the amount of opioids that they need. And I think it's really sad that the CDC opioid guidelines actually violated the standards of scientific research. These new CDC standard will impose legal limits on the maximum amount of opioid pain relievers a doctor may prescribe to a patient who isn't actually dying of cancer. A maximum of 90 morphine equivalents will be imposed retroactively on patients who've done well on much higher doses for years with no evidence of addiction or overdose risk. This despite the fact that the methodology of this morphine equivalents per day is itself considered a meaningless medical mythology by many experts in the field. So this paper, there was a pain medicine paper that said to dismiss trials as inadequate if their observation period is a year or less is inconsistent with current regulatory standards. Considering only the duration of active treatment and efficacy or effectiveness trials, published evidence is no stronger for any major drug category or behavioral therapy than for opioids. But these, the CDC got rid of every study every study that didn't have a minimum of a year data for opioids, but they kept in the smaller studies and the shorter studies for all the other classes of medicines. And they didn't keep the writers from exaggerating opioid risk, using the term overdose no less than 150 times in their biased and unscientific practice standard. So these same authors who wrote the original CDC guidelines have come back and said, unfortunately, (laughs) some policies and practices purportedly derived from the guidelines have in fact been inconsistent with and often go beyond its recommendations. They put out what they thought were recommendations that have been taken as mandate. They were originally designed for primary care. They have been used instead to limit the specialists in this room from writing the medicines about which we know the most. So their perspective, the guideline states that clinicians should avoid increasing dosage to more than 90 morphine equivalents. This statement doesn't address or suggest discontinuation of opioids already prescribed at higher doses, and yet it's been used to justify abruptly stopping opioid prescriptions or coverage. The recommendation, this is the authors now saying, doesn't apply to dosing for medication-assisted treatments for opioid use disorder. Oh, so sorry, guys. My bad. Yes. Consensus panel has highlighted these inconsistencies, which include inflexible application of recommended doses and duration thresholds and policies that encourage hard limits and abrupt tapering of drug doses, resulting in sudden opioid discontinuation or dismissal of patients from a physician's practice. 
They also said the unintended consequences, rather than caring for patients receiving high doses or engaging and supporting patients in efforts to taper their dosage, some clinicians will fi- may find it easier to refer or dismiss their patients from care. And I have seen it. I have gotten calls and emails from patients that I treated 15 years ago who were still on their stable doses of medicines in tears because their doctors were refusing to write the medicines, sorry, that had kept them out of pain. So the non-pharmacologic treatments, um, they did the system. There's a, an acute, the agency for healthcare research is getting systematic reviews and they're trying to address whether there needs to be a guidelines update. Yeah, no shit, Sherlock. Um, there, the uh, HR, the, um, the agency for healthcare research and quality is now doing an acute pain. Uh, very interesting. This is the people who they're, apl- they're uh, proposing for uh, key informants and affiliations. Uh, what I thought was particularly, I'm on there. I don't know anything about this. They got my name on there. I've never heard of them before. But So ASIP in 2017 put, again, um, a new set of guidelines. And you saw a little bit of it from Dr. Candido. Comprehensive assessment, screening, utilization of prescription monitoring programs, urine drug testing, appropriate diagnosis. You cannot treat what you cannot diagnose. And low back pain is not a diagnosis, guys. We know that. Uh, Establish medical necessity. I can't tell you how many times I'm seeing these op reports and there's nothing in there about the medical necessity. So no surprise that things are getting denied. Stratify patients based on risk, establish treatment goals, and obtain an opioid agreement. What else has ASIP done? Well, they did a letter um, to, the, to Congress, health of the Subcommittee on Health Ways and Means, and they came up with a three-tiered system. Tier one, an aggressive public education campaign teaching the dangers of illicit drugs, specifically heroin and fentanyl. Public education t- campaign about the, aver- the adverse consequences in combining with de- benzos. Mandatory physician education for all prescribers of any amount of opioids, four hours of it continuing education per year. Just that much. And then mandatory patient education associated with a first prescription of any amount of opioid. Tier two, easier access to and low or no copay for non-opioid techniques such as physical therapy and the interventional techniques. Expanded low threshold access for buprenorphine. It kills me that when I'm trying to get somebody off an opioid and I want to put them on buprenorphine, I need a week and a half to get prior approval from Medicaid to do that. This should be a given, guys. Establishment of an enhanced prescription drug monitoring program a national, with our, our NASPR, the National Prescriptions Electronic Reporting Act, that we passed in 2005, 2005, and never got funded. And the mandate review of the PDMP by all providers prior to all prescriptions. Tier three, buprenorphine must be available for chronic pain management in addition to addiction. How many of you use buprenorphine for chronic pain? It's a great medicine, wonderful medicine. I've had patients on 80 milligrams of oxycodone four times a day with pain scores of eight and nine who are on pain, get pain scores of zero on buprenorphine. Different mechanism action, decrease opioid hyperalgia, wonderful drug. 
and then remove, they, uh, remove methadone from the formulary. This is the one I don't agree with because I do believe that methadone has a role. It's a more dangerous drug. It needs to be used. It needs to be used cautiously, but it's probably the only medicine that I've ever been able to get opioided to get doctors back to being doctors and cops back to being cops. And this just talks about the cardiac arrhythmia potential. The, I've mentioned a couple of times the Alliance for the Treatment of Intractable Pain, a very interesting organization, very active. They've been um, very much involved with this HHS uh, task force. Uh, they recommending withdraw the draft evidence map for an independent internal review because there's a concern that these, these committees are not open and they are not without bias. Explicitly address where the weaknesses of the trials literature for the non-opioid therapies in chronic pain may also apply in the assessment of acute practice guidelines. Redirect this evidence map to remove the scientifically unsupported assumption. We get this, um, you know, that, that there's not enough evidence for a facet injection and there's no evidence at all for a TENS unit, but the TENS unit is okay because it's cheap. Um, and then fully identify the professional qualifications and employment of all these key informants so we don't have these unexpected biases. Um, Pharmacy Times had a very interesting article um, just recently, and it was titled, Should We Believe Patients in Pain? And it goes on, he talks about his own pain, he talks about uh, his mother-in-law who had had horrible pain. Um, It talks about, so should we believe patients who say they're suffering from pain? Have they been targeted by prescribers and dispensers of prescription medicine in the past few years who refuse to write or fill their, their prescriptions. Of course, they're drug seekers who are not legitimate patients, and sometimes these folks are difficult to, suit out, sort, to sort out or root out. They're partially responsible for patients in pain not receiving needed medicines, but their actions should not make prescribers, dispensers, and even law enforcement wary of everybody claiming to be in pain. Let's go back to dealing with each person claiming to be in legitimate pain and believe them until we have some solid evidence that they're scamming the system. If they are, then let's pursue through vigorous persecution, but let's not punish the majority of patients receiving opioids who are legitimate patients in pain. What I think is particularly interesting about this, this is Commander John Burke, a 40-year veteran of law enforcement, past president of the the National Association of Drug Diversion Investigators, and president and co-founder of the International Health Faculty Diversion Association. Few things a doctor does are more important than relieving pain. Pain is soul-destroying. No patient should have to endure intense pain unnecessarily. The quality of mercy is essential to the practice of medicine. Here, of all places, it should not be strained. We need to trust, but verify. Thank you very much. I told you she was incredible. I, uh, I've listened to that a couple of times, and um, it's uh, never going to get old. So, once again, use it as a point of reference. Uh, practice within your comfort, but don't practice in the, within fear. If you practice in fear, you're going to undertreat or overtreat, and that's where you're going to make mistakes. I think if you listen to Andrea and those that are uh, thought leaders and others around, and you're going to hear over and over again, practical sense wins out. And if I could uh, take home any message uh, to uh, those that 
want to know a little bit more about controlled substance management, those maybe in family practice, neurology, orthopedics, or uh, my my dear uh, colleagues, I I would say this one thing is you got to listen to that little voice on your shoulder, just that little voice. You know, it's it's there, and if you're just not feeling right about something, that's where all those years of training are saying to you, um, step back, take a look, take a thought, and it'll it'll make it'll it'll just make you feel better to know you're doing the right thing for the right reason. Okay, well, I look forward to talking to you again soon, and I hope you enjoyed this podcast. And um, once again, participating in uh, ASIP is uh, key to uh, moving forward in this specialty. And uh, please uh, drop Andrea a line. Tell her you appreciate her. Thanks again.